Axiom crew, Axiom One has finally landed. And this has like huge implications. I mean, for yes. lots of different reasons. <laughs> so this is the first private commercial space flight that docked with the International Space Station. And this is the one that I thought, oh no, not another bunch of rich guys going up to space. But you were actually pretty positive about it. Well, they, they went up there to, to do some work. I mean, they, they, they researched, you know, what would be some good science that we could accomplish in that The world's in that wealthiest time. interns. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, they, you know, they went up there with good stuff to do. I was thinking of it from the point of view of the people up there on the space station, because you know what they say about guests and mm. fish, right? <laughs> so, actually, be before you finish <laughs> that off, how, how many days were they up there? Were they up there long enough to start smelling? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's it, we don't take showers, but it's really easy to stay clean up there, okay? Okay, good. Seriously, it is, it is. So I've been scanning what's been happening in space. Have you come across the company Privateer, which just came out of stealth mode a few days ago? I have not seen that, Andrew. So Privateer is actually a, a company that's associated with Steve Wozniak. You remember Steve yes, was yes. one of the original founders of, of Apple. And it's a company that is trying to solve the problem of space junk. Um, and they've got a couple of really intriguing things. One is they've got a publicly accessible map of all of the satellites and junk circling the Earth. And you can actually go to their website and see this. And it is scary. You can actually hardly see the Earth because of the, the aura of, of junk around it. But their aim is this approach that says, if we can track everything that's out there, we can begin to do something about it so we can start a cleanup operation. I thought that was kind of cool. I think it's definitely cool. I mean, and at the same time, the steps between now that we can see it and how are we going to get rid of it? I'm not yeah. trying to be negative. This is not simple. One of the most profound things that I learned was that, I mean, we used to track around 27,000 objects in space that were bigger than 10 centimeters. But now that we can see better, yep. we are tracking everything that's bigger than one centimeter. And that means almost half a million objects. Which is crazy. But but you're right. The first step is being able to see and track it. Second step, much bigger step, is working out what we're going to do about it. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking, what will people do on the first private space station? Which means I've got to ask you, Katie, what would you do on the first private space station? Ooh, you're going to have this time in this very unique laboratory wing, and it gives you all these opportunities to do research. So I would actually start going around to all the different fields, and I would see what they need done up in space. Right. You know, you are such a scientist. So you would you would do more science up there. Well, but I but I am also assuming that I get to do some other things. And I must confess, what I What would you like, do? Well, what would you what do? Would I, what would I do? Um I do not know. I would probably so so you have said so much about flying in space with um sort of microgravity. I would want to experience that. And I'm slightly leery about this because I get motion sick so fast. But that aside, I would love to experience what you've described, number one. And then I've actually, I have got numbers two and three, but I'm going to wait for our obsessions before I, I get into that. <laughs> Katie, what are you obsessing about this week? I'm obsessed with packing. <laughs> Partly because as soon as the Axiom crew undocked, 
and came back to Earth. Then crew number four in a SpaceX capsule, a NASA crew, which is made up of European Space Agency and NASA. Um, So there's four new people going up there and they were going to launch. And it turns out that these things are all tied together. Then the Axiom folks, that capsule lands in the water. And so there's a crew that's out there picking them up. Right. And that's the same crew that has to be ready in case the next launch launches and they have trouble and they have to abort and land in the water. And those people have to be ready and the and the weather has to be good. And so basically every time So they're packing slipped. for uncertainty. So so actually, so I I thought this was a story about these amazing crews that go out and, and pick up the astronauts after they've landed, but really it's about what they put in their suitcase. Well, but actually for me it's really about how to get what I know should be in the suitcase in there. Answer me this. What sort of packer are you? I am a roll it up while running and rolling the suitcase packer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and right. it's it's kind of funny going to space. They pack everything for us, but some things we really get to pick. And the women get to pick their underwear. <laughs> the really important stuff. Well, I hold it, hold it. There's something missing. So does that mean that when guys go up, NASA chooses their underwear for them? No. Oh. It means that through and here's here's the bad thing about being first and being so many guys, right? Is that basically, you know, that underwear comes back, it goes into the vault. There's a whole bunch of pairs of underwear of all different <laughs> sorts. And so they get to pick from the ones that are already space qualified. Whereas there just aren't that many women. There's not this big stockpile. So there's some pretty, you know, pretty interesting stuff that ends up on the ends up up there. Okay, so so people heard it here first, the saga of underwear when you're an international astronaut. Sounds like the Academy Awards of underwear. <laughs> so Andrew, go for yes. it. Obsess. So actually, this obsession does come from this week's podcast episode, which blew me away as we were talking about private space stations and what's possible. But the thing that stuck with me from this interview is the possibility that in a few years' time, we might have space study abroad for students. So get your head around that. So study abroad is where students go um, out to other countries and spend a few weeks or a few months there, just getting used to the culture, exposing themselves to different things, different ideas. Imagine if we could send a bunch of students up to a space station. Oh, Andrew, I love this. I know. And I so I just have this dream because we're doing this from Arizona State University. I can imagine ASU having the world's first ever space station study abroad. 2030, maybe 2032. Wouldn't that be a thing? We did talk about, you know, in doing experiments, there's a lot of doing that takes a lot of time. And people might want those interns on the space station. That's it. I'll tell you something. They're cheaper than a millionaire. Anyway, we should get back to our big question. What will people do on the first private space station? I mean, so far, you know, all space stations have been owned and operated either by individual governments like the Skylab or the Mir, or by a group of nations cooperating together like the International Space Station. But as we've said, that is all about to change. Much like private companies have developed satellites, rockets, and other space vehicles, some are now working to design privately owned orbital platforms. Well, for what exactly? Well, last year... Blue Origin announced its plan to build a private space station. 
and they called it Orbital Reef. And that station will be a home to a mix of uses, including business, research, tourism, and we'll find out what else. Yes, and, and with plans to launch before the end of this decade, Orbital Reef may not be the first commercial space station, but it looks to be one of the earliest and the most sophisticated. Full disclosure, Arizona State University and the Interplanetary Initiative are partnering with Blue Origin on the Orbital Reef Project. And we know what people do on government-funded space stations. They mostly do research and testing new technologies. But what are people going to do on a private station? To get these answers, we talked with two people who have thought a lot about the future of human activities in space. Erica Wagner is Senior Director for Emerging Market Development at Blue Origin, where she supports development of human spaceflight vehicles and technologies. Previously, she was the Senior Director of Exploration Prize Development for the XPRIZE Foundation and served as the Executive Director of the Mars Gravity Biosatellite Program, investigating the effects of low gravity on physiology. And Jesse Kate Schingler is the director of a space policy and governance at the Open Lunar Foundation. That's a nonprofit working to enable cooperative settlements on the moon. Jesse Kate has spent decades researching and working to develop decentralized, self-governing communities based on these new approaches to sovereignty, jurisdiction, and institutional design. This is just a fascinating conversation about the future, the very near future at that, of people living, working, and playing in space. Erica Wagner, Jesse Kate Chingler, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. So nice to be here. Great to be here with good friends. I want to start with Erica. Recently, Blue Origin has announced Orbital Reef. Tell me what does a private space station look like? So the vision of Blue Origin is a future where there are millions of people living and working in space for the benefit of Earth. And, and I think all those things are important. Uh, to get to millions of people living and working in space, we've got to start with tens or, or dozens. I was going to say, that seems to be a way away in millions, but I guess small steps. <laughs> steps in the right direction, right? We talk about gradatum ferocitor, step-by-step you know, step ferociously. Mm -hmm. So orbital reefs being designed to be a, a space destination, an orbital address that's a, a bit closer to home. Uh, it's a commercially owned and developed and operated space station that will be built in low Earth orbit, uh, operational by the late 2020s. So let's say 10 years from the time it's assembled and built, and you happen to be up on that space station, and you're flying around the space station, who are you going to meet, and what are they going to be doing? Well, I, I personally look forward to going someday. That's something I'm very excited about. So I, I look forward to the, the people I meet in my neighborhood. I think what we're trying to build is a community up there that is multifaceted. So the International Space Station really anchored by the governments of the world, a handful of governments of the world, and, and really focused on what governments need to do. We still want to serve that mission. We hope to be the, the home for, for space agencies worldwide in low Earth orbit. But we also hope to have a, a number of other things going on. We're, we're passionate about what happens when you commercialize space uh, and when, when firms that do R&D can come up and bring their laboratories to space. 
We're passionate about what happens when you bring communities to space and, and start to have consumer space travel and what it means to be able to, to pack your bags and, and head to space, whether that's for a week or a month or, or a longer period of time. And then we're really interested in seeing what happens when you do these things together, when we start to have a, a business park in space, as it were, uh, that has lots of different facets that are, are going on at the same time. So the business side of this really fascinates me. What are businesses going to be doing up there? When we start to think about the the future of spaceflight, it it really is normalizing spaceflight as part of what we do right. as the human enterprise. So every company on on the ground really is a space company these days. We use GPS, we use communication satellites, we use weather data. It, we we all have space that's sort of embedded in the fiber of what we're doing. But I think that we will increasingly see that that every company is a space company e- even more explicitly in the future. And so whether that is creating content because you are you know, a media creator or an, or an artist, or that's creating uh, you know intellectual property and, and intellectual value or, or products, actually manufacturing stuff. Turns out that microgravity is a really interesting tool in the manufacturing process because you can make materials you just can't make on the ground. Uh, so I think that there's a, a lot of different things going on, and that that's that's sort of the the joy of this next generation of, of space uh, exploration and space travel is it starts to be more of those uh, facets of humanity. So so this is not just sort of um, putting all the HR folks or the the people you don't want in the office on the ground up in space. This is a little bit more sophisticated than that. I'd rather think about it as putting the things you don't want on the ground from the Earth's perspective uh, up in space. So we talk about for the benefit of Earth, and and what does that really mean? Well, if you think about the things that we manufacture, the things that are are really hard on our planet, uh, you take those off of, of the planet, and some of that actually becomes a lot more sustainable. So we can start to think about the future of manufacturing being in space, the future of energy capture being in space, and then you you are able to feed that benefit back to Earth without the damage that we've been causing. So I'd love to bring Jesse Kate um, in here. What sort of businesses do you envisage being in the first stage of Orbital Reef? Just thinking about practically who is going to who are going to be the first tenants. Um, the things that come to mind are what can we prototype in Earth orbit that can be a stepping stone to um, deeper solar system presence and exploration. Uh, so some of the things that that have come up in, in conversations that I've been part of include very, very small-scale manufacturing, 3D printing experiments, low or microgravity manufacturing processes that we haven't yet had the opportunity to try uh, on the lunar right. surface. So I think that's an, that's an interesting starting point. But I also really like what Eric was saying about community. You know, I think that what an incredible moment in time to be able to think about not just people going up to uh, Earth orbit to be in space in order to do work, but also to to be in community, to have an experience. And, you know, we talk a lot about, about the overview effect, and I think that is very important. But actually, I think community is something a little bit different. You know, I think there's something about community that is, and, and the opportunity to think about and, and, and practice community in space that is rethinking how we navigate and negotiate our agreements with one another in this very different environment. Uh, and that, that opportunity then gives us a new lens on what it might mean to navigate sort of uh, social dynamics. And that's, that's really what I think is exciting. Um, one example would be the notion of solidarity. What does it mean to be in solidarity with one another in the outer space environment? And how is that different than what it means to be in solidarity on Earth? Or how might, how might the outer space environment challenge or 
invite us to be in solidarity together in different ways. And that, uh, of course, that complements and that works together with, say, doing a good job in the scientific research you're doing. Right. But, uh, but it's a different literal container for kind of how these interpersonal relations unfold. When I think about who is in space today, they are almost all professionals. Right? This is they are, are there explicitly because they have been trained to be career astronauts. And I think as we make that shift, so that you might uh, think of, of of being in space as a part of your job, as, as a, a tool in your suitcase, as a place you just happen to be operating, um, that 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 really changes the dynamic of, of groups working together. So I, I love to think about someone who may be um, a ground researcher, and, and I love I love my friends that are astronauts that are, are researchers. But usually they're conducting everybody else's research, right? And th- this idea that you're going to go up and be just a pair of, of trained hands is very different than I'm going to take my life's work uh, up to space to conduct it. How do you deal with uh, the really challenging stuff around governance and taxes and intellectual property? I mean, good question. You know, I think there's there's a reference point that we have, which is the International Space Station. And on the ISS, there are actually very sort of pithy and, you know, well-articulated set of rules about how things that are uh, even made, like fabricated on the ISS or scientific results and the intellectual property associated with those, uh, who owns them. And, you know, if a conflict takes place, you know, what is the sort of uh, jurisdiction under which it's it is adjudicated, for example, if it needed to be. Uh, so there are some baseline reference points, and I think what Blue and what Eric is talking about with with Orbital Reef will will of course hopefully challenge that in a good way, right? Like expand that and bring it into some new kind of territory, no pun intended. But when we think about you know if somebody makes something on the Orbital Reef, I think the sort of a boring answer maybe, but our starting point will be that jurisdiction, if you will, will flow from the the actors, the operators that are uh, conducting the activity, but it's presumably going to get a lot more complicated. You're going to need to enrich the kind of system of understanding how responsibility, accountability, and also just sort of like um, agency to act or to take decisions will uh, proceed. Do you think we can do this country by country, or do you think we need to completely rethink space governance at a global level? So I think there's a natural progression there. I think just like if you look at Antarctica or even, you know, kind of like remote salt flats on Earth, what you see is there is this natural progression where if you just have an outpost that really only exists for some kind of go out there, do a job, and then come back like the ISS has been, then then there's less of a need for, let's say, endogenous kind of decision-making structures. But the more that you have independent actors and the more that you are you're taking action without direction from this external location, then the more you need to see a commensurate evolution of um, local decision-making structures. So Erica, as you begin to bring people on board, what what are some of the steps and some of the agreements and some of the, you know, hard talks and easy talks that you're having to have with potential customers? Well, so it's interesting. As Jesse Kate was saying, we're we're in this era where we're sort of moving from treaties to contracts, right? We're we're rethinking the structures that govern what we're doing in space. And we're also in a crawl, walk, run kind of mentality where a lot of what we're doing in low Earth orbit is prototyping. Uh, It's prototyping hardware, but it's also prototyping business and social structures uh, and and legal and regulatory environments for the moon and Mars and beyond. So as we as we start to do these things, there there are opportunities for us to to stretch what has to be done, what we are interested in exploring. 
one of the the examples that that's often in our, our conversations is you have something like a, a Kenyan researcher working with a Brazilian manufacturer in an Australian system launched by a Japanese rocket on a U.S. space station. You have to work through the complexities of this because it's not it's not unified anymore. It's not just the ISS. It is really all all the complexities that we bring together with international collaborations and different forms and constructs. So I I think we've we've got an opportunity to to start simple, uh, start start with basic contracts that define uh, where we want it to be, leverage what we know. Uh, The Outer Space Treaty is a really solid foundation for a lot of this. Uh, Intellectual property and, and criminal law can rely on terrestrial legal systems by and large. We can take a lot of inspiration from the intergovernmental agreement that governed the ISS. Uh, then we can start to see how do we how do we grow as the Artemis Accords offer examples around safety zones and non-interference and orbital debris. And as we move into a more commercial era, how do all of these things give us the springboard into the next generation of, of operations? Well, I, I just, I love, Erica, what you're saying about moving from treaties to contracts. And I think it encapsulates this really important thing that will deeply influence how this kind of ecosystem evolves, which is that we we won't have the luxury to wait for a kind of like formal United Nations meeting to happen that takes place over five years to make a decision about who's responsible for what. And so obviously there's, there's some fear associated with that and un- understandably so, and there's an opportunity. And so I think you know, the, the meta opportunity for projects like Orbital Reef is to notice it, to name it, and then say, great, how do we intentionally incubate that opportunity so that we set positive precedents. And not just on orbital reef, but in everything that's going on in, in space commercialization. I think this really has to be a, a cross-industry conversation, a, a, a transnational conversation uh, about how we, we set the intention that we want moving forward. Um, traditionally, I feel like we, we bring our, our better selves, our best selves to space. I mean, there's something about exploration, I think, that brings out that in everyone. And yet in everything that both of you are describing, we're really going to have to expand what trust looks like. Do, do you think that's true? And do you think it's possible? I think that's a great point. I think it goes back to the idea of solidarity that I was talking about earlier. Like, from where do you develop trust? You know, where does your trust come from if you're on the orbital reef? If something unexpected happens, do you turn around to the people that you came up with? Or do you turn around to people that you felt really connected with? And, you know, what is it about that interaction that caused that sense of trust? What I would say is, I would love to see on places like Orbital Reef in a in a non-creepy way, I would love to see studies of these kinds of basically social science studies, you know, of how people experience trust in environments like that, so that we can learn know how it's going to be different and maybe what we can take as, as we've all been saying, what we could take back here. To Earth. So I, I, I love that idea. But bringing that back to what you were saying earlier about community, is this also an opportunity to have radical experimentation around different social and economic systems? Or do we just have to follow the, the capitalistic systems that, that we seem to be inured with um, on Earth? Uh, well, uh, if you know me, you'll know that I think of pretty much any physical environment can be a good excuse for sociopolitical experimentation. It was a sort of leading question, yes. <laughs> In fact, Erica and I have spent some time at, uh, at Biosphere 2, and that that is an incredible reference point for um, the kinds, the ways in which social and scientific experimentation uh, can proceed together. Mm-hmm. Like not all science experiments go perfectly, not all social experiments go perfectly. And there's a sort of rich history of, of what happened at Biosphere 2. But I think it was an incredible success on so many levels. Like they pioneered all kinds of 
things, of activities, of ways of interacting with each other that, that nobody had ever done before. And that was really uh, inspiring. Um, in the orbital reef context, I would say that, um, you know, short answer is yes, because of course, the, let's say I w- what I would consider the container of the space station itself is being constructed under the current socioeconomic system. Mm-hmm. I don't think yep. that's a, necessarily a bad thing. But the question is, how do you how do you create a kind of container within the container right. that could potentially incubate different social logics? And if we think about it that way, I think we can, um, you know, think about the API, if you will, between these two different uh, domains. That, that's what I was going to ask going to Erica. I mean, how do you make this profitable or at least sustainable? So Orbital Reef really is a, a public-private partnership in a lot of ways. Uh, we, we view NASA as an anchor tenant and the space agencies of the world as, as anchor tenants. Um, but we also are a an expandable modular system. So if you look at pictures of the Orbital Reef, you'll see a core module with a couple of uh, modules attached on the sides. And then the, the whole system is architected to grow. So as the markets grow, as the needs grow, we can add another core and, and two more modules on the sides. We can add a third core and two more modules on the sides. And we can continue to, to expand what this, this station is. So you move from a, a very traditional model that, that has a, a laboratory and a habitat and, and some infrastructure to a, an expanded ecosystem where, where you really can have all sorts of things adding on. Right. And, and when we talk about the, the orbital reef, uh, there's this, this metaphor sort of implicit in that uh, of coral reefs right. that you have um, a, a large structure that's made up of a lot of small aggregated uh, needs. And you have an ecosystem where diverse species interact and, and, and that that's what brings the health and the vitality to, to the reef. So you could imagine putting up an experimental module on Orbital Reef that is all designed about exploring community and social structures. You could imagine putting up a, a movie studio. You could imagine putting up a, a, a condominium. There's all sorts of different ways of uh, envisioning the, the growth of this that is much more organic and I guess maybe market-driven, needs-driven than than the traditional ISS has been really focused as it has been on, on government centrally owned and operated. Well, I love that organic idea because it implies that everything, everything that we have here on Earth, that all of the different things we're interested in, they belong in space as well. But I want to talk about one, which is this is my least favorite word actually, but I want to talk about space tourism. And, you know, to me, and maybe you have a better word, Erica. I mean, to me, tourism means you went somewhere, you came back, nothing was changed there, and neither were you. And I don't see that as being possible for space tourists. But what will tourists do on Orbital Reef? Yeah, I I agree that tourism is probably the wrong word for where we are today. Uh, We use the phrase adventure travel. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it sort of implies a a much more active and engagement uh, with the environment that you're in and the community that you're traveling to. So that's that's sort of my mindset. Maybe someday we'll get to tourism where you can just come up and and look out the window and go home. But I I think right now it's it's a much more involved experience. And, And I look at the what's been going on on the International Space Station as not a bad model. And we, we have these these private spaceflight participants that are coming up, and they are conducting research, and they, they are they are interacting with the crew, and they have messages that they are filming and sharing with, with communities back home. I, I think that that's a, a place that we start, and, and that we can grow from there as we. St- as we better understand what the the fun is that can be had, travel and tourism is is about learning. It's about exploring. It's about playing, and, and all of those things can happen in space. And and I would agree that at least the, the dozen space tourists that who've come to the International Space Station, every one of them comes home and 
takes that experience and does something with it that is really meaningful down here on Earth. So building on that, Erica, when can we expect the first student study abroad program on Orbital Reef? (laughs) And are Andrew and I too old for it? Well, I, I think that the ASU Interplanetary <laughs> Initiative is is really well situated to have the, the first students in space. I, I'm happy to have that conversation. I think a campus in space is a really compelling idea wow, because yes. it, it really does take us out of our comfort zone in a lot of different ways and puts us right into the laboratory, right into the the, the fields of exploration, whether those are science or technology or social science and art and design. There's, there's all of these different things that can come come into play. I think first we'll probably see teachers and they'll be sharing back with communities of students on the ground. That's the mental model in my head anyway, but I can't wait to take students up. I love that idea too. You know, as long as you could create that container where you can truly kind of incubate or or protect kind of like different forms of of thinking and interacting, I think that would be excellent. I'll, I'll just sort of maybe go out on a limb here and, and be a bit of a provocateur, but I was, I was trying to reconcile a bit in my mind, the fact that, the beachhead of this kind of activity has has been tourism. Uh, but when I talk to my communities here on Earth, most folks are not inspired by this, the tourism that we're seeing happen right mm-hmm. now. Like if anything, they are, they're sort of dismayed and it's it, like it's been very divisive for them because they're seeing that the thing that they just have this broad narrative about is kind of collapsed, like the wave function around it is collapsed into kind of billionaire joyrides. And I'm not saying that's correct. Everything is more complicated than any one label can be, but it, it it makes me think about how can we connect these two things more powerfully. And an interesting sort of uh, thought process for me when I when I look back historically at technologies uh, and and the experience of, of technologies maturing, we often see that that the the first computer was incredibly expensive. You know, it filled a room. The, the first uh, airplanes were were travel only by the, the wealthiest. His cell phones were not something that were in, in everybody's pocket and globally. And what we were able to do is to leverage those those initial markets, those early adopters, to, to bring down the costs, to bring up the value creation, and to start to, to promulgate these, these technologies uh, so that they are of more service to the world and more broadly available. So I, I think we are in those early days of space flight where where it's it's not yet available to everyone and we may never be available to everyone uh, even even air travel today is only like 25 percent of the world right so I, I think that that what we're seeing though is that these these early pioneers are are really making the investments that will help us to to increase utility and decrease costs uh, for everybody else and you know, when Jesse Kate was bringing up, you know, that, that there is a narrative that these are the billionaires and why should I care? And and I think when you take a closer look, you see that, you know, many of these people are using that opportunity to make a change that no one else can change. And, you know, the first trans person, I believe, Erica, flying on on uh, Blue Origin. And so, Jesse Kate, I'm, I'm wondering, and really from from both of you, how can we change that narrative? How can we bring out basically the the power that comes in going to space, the power to do good? How can we bring that out? I mean, first of all, I think it's pausing to ask the question, you know, the the intentionality behind the work that so many folks here are doing and, and more broadly in the space community. When I'm asked some of these questions about the, the tension between the sort of like billionaire beachhead versus showing people what space can stand for and its potential, you know, it's 
acknowledging that perhaps space travel is accessible to very, very few people right now, but working to make it accessible to more people, both through the kinds of experiences we were talking about, like a campus in space, or through bringing researchers that wouldn't have historically been, been part of uh, space activity. When I think about uh, what we've been trying to do with the new Shepard vehicle, is where we're, again, at, at that beachhead, at, that, that, at those early days of, of opening these these opportunities. We've tried to be intentional uh, about opening those doors in ways that that reflect more of our community, to be able to fly uh, a father and son, to be able to, to have our, our first uh, gender non-binary astronaut talking about their experience, to have the oldest and the youngest. And I think what we're, we're seeing is that we're, we're getting a broader community. Uh, and it goes back to that classic, you, you can't be what you can't see. We're, we're hoping that these these pioneers that are out there are are making it possible for a wider spectrum of, of people to imagine themselves in this space, to imagine the possibilities of what they could create and what they could give back and what value uh, they could put out into the universe and if space were just a part of their lives. Uh, and, and so I, I think that there's, there's some power in that. Jesse Cates, Erica Wagner, this has been inspirational. I have a gazillion more questions, but we have to wrap this up. But thank you so much for joining us and put me on the list for the first person to the first campus in space. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. mission interplanetary. We can't show you, for instance, last week's amazing video of a solar eclipse on Mars. You should definitely look that up, though. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Okay, Andrew. So I've, I've, sorry, Andrew, what do you think? What do you think that was? Uh, so, actually, before we go into this, I've got to check. I was actually hearing the right thing, wasn't I? Well, yes and no, it's, it's Andrew. Sound, Andrew, it, it, it I think that like... I, I think that I um, mixed up a file that I sent to Steve, and I meant to send him this really cool thing, and I sent him tape of my cat saber snoring so i was i was gonna say that is the sound of a tribble waking up <laughs> that, mm, andrew i have mm. been waiting for weeks to do this to you right. <laughs> oh steve our very kind uh our very kind sound engineer maybe you should play the real sounds of space for us <laughs> did you like it Andrew, what do you think that was? Goodness me. So that, Katie, was the sound heard 
by the mouse that inadvertently got caught up in the Mars rover as a stowaway. And it's sitting there in this little enclosed closet, and as the Mars rover moves along, it can hear this slight rumbling sound from outside. It's no idea where it is or what's going on. But you can hear that distant sound as the, the rover just rumbles along the Mars surface. Am I right? I think you I think you are totally right. Okay. Because I definitely I mean, th- was there scurrying or was there not scurrying? There was definitely scurrying there around. There was definitely scurrying there as well. Yes. In fact, in fact <laughs> put me um, out of my misery. Even cooler, that was the voice of Saturn. The so what you heard voice were the of Saturn. Yes. And so what you heard were these intense radio emissions from Saturn. Huh. And they're they're closely related to the auroras at the poles of the planet, like mm. our northern and southern lights here on Earth. And these radio waves were detected by NASA's Cassini mission when that spacecraft was 230 million miles wow. from Saturn. So that's so some these, good microphones. So these are like the, the Saturn's northern radio lights. Exactly. Sort of. Well, Very and, cool. And so like the sound structure suggests that there's actually a lot of small radio sources hmm. moving along the magnetic field lines of the planet. Mm-hmm. And that recording that you heard compresses 27 minutes of waves into just over a minute. And the frequency is shifted downward by a factor of 44 to bring it into audible range. It's really pretty eerie, isn't it? It is, but I I love the fact that you were talking about the structure in the sound. So sometimes we just think sound is sound or sound is nice or attractive. But actually, there's deep structure there. Just as when we see something, we see structure in the, the visual picture. We can hear structure in the sound that tells us something about Saturn. That is amazing. Let's listen to that again. for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We would love to know what you think. Write to us on our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at ii underscore ASU or send us a tweet, comment, or question. And please recommend us to your friends. That would be awesome. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.